0: Prepares the twelve to go out on a mission trip, and uh, then he, after he prepares them, he expands and prepares us for what it's going to be like throughout the church age as we uh, spread the gospel. And it's not going to be pretty. Jesus says, "Some of you will be handed over uh, to jail. You'll be tortured. You'll be killed." Uh, and last week we looked at the fact that uh, parents will betray children, and children will betray parents. And he says, stay faithful to the end, though. Right? Now, we're going to move from chapter 10 to chapter 11. It's almost like we're going to a completely different book of the Bible today um, because uh, now we, we switch to a different topic. We switch to Jesus communicating with John the Baptist. John has been arrested. John is in jail, and Jesus is out preaching and doing miracles, and here's what happens. And in, uh, in, in the, the title is, by the way, Is That It? The Disappointment of John the Baptist. Right? Matthew 11, 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him. Now, remember, John was the one who was baptizing thousands of people in the Jordan River. Jesus walks by and he says, look, the Lamb of God, this is the Messiah, follow him. He baptizes Jesus. He introduces Jesus. Jesus to the world. He is the Messiah. But now John is in prison, in verse 3, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Kind of wondering if I got the right guy here. I'm not so sure I got the right Messiah. Are you really the guy? And Jesus responds, Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. So uh, these are messengers going back and forth between Jesus and John. And what is Jesus' answer? Now I'm going to highlight some words here. Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed are those who don't stumble When they encounter me. Now, what is Jesus' answer? Well, here's his answer He's saying, I am displaying all the signs that authenticate me as the predicted Messiah. In fact, um, I just finished today reading uh, Isaiah. And throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah talks about a time when the Messiah will come. And the world will change. And here's what the Messiah will do. Isaiah 35, 5-6. through 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. So you've got the blind, you've got the lame, you've got the deaf all being healed. So when the Messiah comes, there will be miraculous healings. Then in Isaiah 26:19, Your dead... "...shall live, their bodies shall rise, you will dwell in the dust, awake, Uh, you who dwell in the dust, awake, and sing for joy, people will be raised from the dead, and one more thing, the spirit of the Lord, God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the gospel will be preached, so Jesus is saying, hey John, I'm preaching the good news, I'm healing blind people. I'm even raising the dead. Yes, I am the Messiah. Now, what's the problem here? When you read these Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah and the Messianic age, it appears as if when the Messiah comes, the world changes dramatically when he comes. In other words, it looks like Uh, The Messiah will come and the world will be transformed. The resurrection of the dead, of all the dead, will take place. And everybody will be healed who is sick or blind or lame. But Jesus didn't transform the entire world when he came. And what John didn't understand is that the Messiah would come twice. First to humbly die on a cross to pay for our sin. And that first time he came, he gave us a taste of the coming age. He raised a few people from the dead. He healed a number of people. He preached the gospel. But the world wasn't totally transformed. Now, after Christ has come, we get the idea that his first coming, he authenticated himself with these miracles. He uh, died to pay for our sins. And for the last 2,000 years, God has been calling out a people to be his. But then he's going to come back a second time and radically change everything. Now, um, let me put some illustrations up here. Here we have the fallen world. Adam and Eve sinned. The world falls into uh, sin and it's cursed, and we are by nature sinners. Even uh, the earth has been cursed. That's why there's earthquakes and tsunamis and uh, why work is hard and why women have pain in childbirth. This is the fallen world. Now, there is a coming world, a redeemed world that's a perfect world uh, where the curse will be removed and followers of Christ will be finally redeemed, our kind of sagging, flabby, sick bodies will be resurrected from the dead and we'll be given perfect bodies, almost like Ryan right here, okay? <laughs> right? So I'll be walking around, they'll go, are you Ryan? No, I am Brian. Right? <laughs> right? Now, the idea, we get, people confuse us all the time, yeah. So, and that Brad Pitt, too. They go, are you, and I go, no. All right. so, so, there's coming a, a change. Now, John thought, and a lot of the, the followers of Christ in the first century thought, that this is the world we're living in, but when the Messiah comes, boom, this is what it'll be automatically. The reality is, Jesus came the first time to die, he gave us authentication that he is the Messiah. But now, look at, this is the reality. We live in a period of overlapping ages. Here's the old world, and the age to come is not fully here yet. We're living in a time, theologians call it the, the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God has broken in to this age, but it's not heaven Um, In fact, some who study end times, uh, in in fact, I think we've talked about this before, but um, some people have the idea that when Jesus returns, there's this major judgment, and you either go to heaven or to hell, and that's it. Others believe that when Jesus returns, he will actually set up a kingdom here on earth for a thousand years called a millennium where it's not the final state yet, there's still going to be people living here on earth, and Jesus himself will be ruling from Jerusalem. Um, that's called millennialism. Right? If you've never heard about that, don't worry about it. In fact, how many of you have never heard about this thousand-year millennium? Raise your hand if you've never heard about that. Okay, uh, Most of you, if you're from a Catholic or a Lutheran background, you've never heard of that. Okay? How many of you have heard of the millennium? and you were brought up with the millennium, okay? Now, um, some people, uh, whether there's a millennium or not, we won't get into that debate, but right, right here you would say that's that 1,000-year period. Jesus returns a second time, and there's a 1,000 years. You've heard the term where the lion lies down with the lamb, where the curse will be reversed. It's not perfection yet. Now, I heard a story of a guy who... Uh, he, he wasn't going to wait for the millennium. He's going to bring in the millennium himself. He's tired of this sin-cursed world. So he started his own little millennium in his backyard. And he got some animals. He got a lion. He got a lamb. And uh, word spread that he had his millennium going in his backyard. And somebody saw him downtown and said, so how's the millennium going? And um, he goes, Good, going great. Perfect. There's no problems in the millennium. They said, how's that lion? Lion's great. How's the lamb? He goes, we've got to get a new lamb every day. (laughs) Some of us have a wrong idea about the reality we live in right now. We think that when we accept Christ, the church should be perfect, our spouse should be perfect, Our kids should be perfect. Our own sanctification should be perfect. And we're disappointed. Now, we're to strive for perfection. But this ain't the millennium yet. And this ain't perfection yet. We are living in a time in between ages. Oh, there ought to be a difference. If you're a Christian and God lives inside of you, you can't stay the same. But perfection, hold on. Here's what I want to do. I want to apply this paradigm. First of all, I want to ask you, are you living in this paradigm where you think we have entered this? You're going to have all kinds of problems with your church, with your spouse, with your kids, with this world, with your own salvation. You will wake up every day and question your salvation. Or are you living with this paradigm? Right. Let me show you a couple of scripture, scriptures. Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, if, uh, if that becomes your only verse to frame your view of reality, then your view of salvation is Christ has come in. He has forgiven your sins. You're adopted as a child of his. You are perfect. No more sin. But the same author who wrote 2 Corinthians 5, 17, also wrote to the Romans in Romans 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us oh there's there's a future yet we're not there yet for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god now if you are in christ you are an adopted son of god But there's a day when all of creation, the angels and the demons and the whole world, will see you and you will be so glorious. And all the glory goes to God. But that is yet future. Now look, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We are still living in a sin-cursed, corrupt world. And we're, we're groaning and wanting the Lord to return, to restore all things. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I thought we already were adopted and all things are new. You've got the down payment, the Holy Spirit. You are justified before God because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He is cleaning you up. But you haven't been fully redeemed yet. You are in an in-between stage. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to apply this to three areas of life. And how you view what your expectations are of how Christ is going to work in the world and in your heart and in your family, uh, your expectations are affected by your theology. Now, let me give you some big theological terms. Don't worry if you've never heard them before. But in seminary, I heard this um, one wrong view of how to view the stage we're in right now. It's, it's called over-realized eschatology. You go, know, what? Over-realized eschatology is when you have too big of an, of, of an expectation of the age we're living in. In other words, you think heaven has come to earth. The church should be perfect. Your spouse should be perfect. Your sanctification should be perfect. Um, you have an over-realized, overly big expectations of what god is doing during this age now the opposite is called underrealized eschatology Underrealized eschatology is your expectations are too little too low you don't really expect god to do anything in your life or in your church or in your spouse okay if you have a wrong view you're going to be uh sadly disappointed with everyone and everything or you're going to expect nothing out of anyone all right let's apply it to the church first okay let's talk about the church by the way I had a fourth point. I was going to talk about the world, and I timed the sermon, and it was about an hour. So I cut out the first point. I wasn't going to take out every other word out of the sermon, but that wouldn't be good. All right, so we're going to start with the church, okay? Let me zero in on one reason why you may be disappointed with church, whether it's this church or any church you have ever been in you may have a wrong view of the overlapping ages. You may expect, yeah, the world—the world's not perfect, but we've been redeemed and saved out of the world, and it should be perfect. I mean, God is living in us, and people should be better than they are. The church should be better than it is. All right? You expect people to be more on fire for Jesus than they are. So you go to church and people still sin and they're still fat and they still say hurtful things and they mess up and you, in righteous anger, say, church should do better than that. In fact, I like it when people say, I think it's kind of funny when people say, what I'm looking for is a first-century church, you know, like it was in the Bible, the first-century church. And I always say, now, which, which church do you want to be like? Like the Galatians, who right after Paul left, they adopted a false gospel, and Paul had to rebuke them in a severe letter? Or how about the Corinthians? They were good. Th- Paul had to rebuke them for their factions and their divisions within the church, and he had to tell them to stop visiting prostitutes. And they were getting unbiblical divorces. They were attending pagan temples and eating the meat. They were getting drunk at communion. That's a good one. And they were denying that there's a future resurrection of the dead. How about we be like the Corinthians? Let's get back to the first century church. Or how about the Ephesian church? Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, um, There are a lot of false teachers in that church. You need to correct them and kick them out. And stop the quarreling during the prayer meetings. You know, the fist fights that are breaking out during the prayer meeting. And Jesus has to tell the Ephesian church, you've lost your first love. You're really good in everything else, but you don't love me anymore. How about we go back to the the Ephesian church? Or how about the Laodicean church that was so lukewarm that Jesus said, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Let's go back and be like the, the first century Laodicean church. Right? Now, what am I saying? Expect nothing? No. Now, that's the other extreme. That's this extreme, that the church is nothing more than a human institution. Eh, we read a little Bible, we sing a few songs, but don't really expect anything out of the people. No holiness, no change at all. Okay. What I am saying is this. There's a type of person who gets quickly disappointed and pretty self-righteous about the lack of perfection they see in other people, in other Christians. They're quick to complain about a lack of zeal, a lack of growth, a lack of maturity. In fact, in fact that's all defined, though, as what they do well. Right? Oh, people need to be more zealous like me. Be careful. You know what I've discovered? Highly critical, highly perfectionistic people are usually blind to the huge log in their own eye. They can go around nitpicking and everybody else, but they've got this huge hypocritical log in their eye. And Jesus said, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own fact of the matter is we are redeemed sinners. And it ain't going to be perfect until the Lord returns. And part of the grace of doing church is learning how to live with imperfect sinners. I've got to tell my job, I've told it before, but the guy who was uh, stranded on the desert island And they, uh, 20 years, was on this desert island. The ship pulls up to rescue him. And he says, before, you know, before you rescue me, I want to show you around. There's three huts on the island. He goes, look, this is my house. This is where I live. They go, that's great. He goes, over here, this is my church. This is where I I worship. They go, that's great. They go, what's the third building? Oh, that's a church I used to go to. (laughs) Thank you for indulging me on that joke that you've heard 20 times before. Okay. Now, On the one hand, there is expecting too much, heaven on earth. On the other hand, there's expecting nothing. In fact, there's a lot of churches that are dead. They don't have the gospel. Nobody's saved, especially not the minister. Okay? And they expect nothing, and they get nothing. Nothing. Be careful. Don't be satisfied with that. Jesus says, uh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? And didn't we cast out demons and do many miracles? In other words, didn't we do a lot of religious stuff? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Don't settle for dead, but don't look for perfection. All right, now, let's apply it to Family, marriage, and family. Okay. Now, can I? I I'm going to. I'm going to share something. Is it okay if I share some things about you? No, you've already had okay. Yes. All right. I did. I asked her. What I've learned is before you do a, a sermon illustration involving your own family, you better ask. Okay. But um, I think we would both admit that the first several years of our marriage were pretty rough, right? Um, I was constantly preoccupied with ministry and church. I come from a workaholic background, and I'm just always... I wasn't available, She was constantly disappointed with me. Not verbally, more like that, you know. I, I knew I wasn't living up to the expectations, right? This went on for quite some time. Until one vacation, I drew a line. I said, I can't take this any longer. I am sorry you are so disappointed in me, you know. Um, but you could do a lot worse. You, know? <laughs> you ever have that one, you Yeah. Know? <laughs> I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear, I do have an income, I am a Christian, I'm a pastor, I'm, that's it, no more, I'm not, I'm not allowing you to be disappointed in me anymore, no more disappointment, okay? Settled that, that fixed it, didn't it, right? Um, Now, she would admit that she did have kind of a, a fantasy, Christian fantasy view of marriage, which you get by going to the Christian family. You go to the bookstore and, and you uh, you look at the marriage section and all the couples are walking down the beach hand in hand and they're perfect. Again, perfect bodies, perfect beautiful faces, and they're in love. And that's the way Christian marriage should be all the time, right? Or if you've ever ever seen a marriage um, series of sermons promoted on a Christian website, it's like, man, i got to go to that, that sermon series because... It's paradise. I want marriage like that. So she was expecting paradise, and she got me, right? But then here's what I did. After she, ex- she adjusted her expectations down to reality, I expected her to never show disappointment again. And the moment she would, I went on a counterattack. And I became greatly disappointed in her disappointment. Until one day, I kind of woke up and I realized, I'm doing the same thing she was doing to me. Expecting her to be perfect and not expecting me to be perfect. Right? Mm -hmm. Here's what it was. We had a law-based marriage, not a grace-based marriage. What's a law-based marriage? You screwed up, and I'm going to hold you to it, and I'm going to remember everything you've done wrong. And then, uh, well, you screwed up. No, you screwed up, and, and it's, it's all about condemning and all about keeping track and all about falling short. Now, am I saying have no rules, have no expectations? No. But treat your spouse the way God treats you. Right? How does God treat you? Well, first of all, does he have a standard? Here's God's standard for you. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, how are you all doing keeping up with that? All right? We have all fallen short of God's perfect standard. That's why Jesus Christ came to die on the cross to fully pay for your sin. And that's why you come on your knees to Jesus as a broken sinner and you say, I have failed. And the great news of the gospel is he says, I know and I've died for you. And his death is given to you and his perfection is given to you. And now he sees you as perfect. In fact, this was a question somebody emailed me this week. Does God see us as perfect or as sinners? And as Martin Luther said, simulus uh, et peccatar. We are simultaneously uh, perfect and sinners at the same time. We are perfect in Christ, yet sinners. But now that we're perfect in Christ, yet we still sin, how does God treat our sin? Here's how he treats it. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are Dust. Some translations say he knows that we are but dust. Now, here's my question. While God knows that you are but dust, do you know that your spouse is but dust? Or must they be perfect? Okay. This applies to how we treat our kids, too. Kids, leave now. Go. Look at this. Is, you'd think from some churches that the Bible was just a parenting manual full of just. You know, the main verse on how to be a father is right here Ephesians 6 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, there is discipline, there is instruction, there are standards. Okay? But notice that in the same breath, Paul has to warn, especially us men, not to provoke our children. I think the NIV says, embitter, um, or what is the word? Uh, do not. What is it? Exasperate. Exasperate. That's, it. That's it. Exasperate. What is exasperating? Riding them so hard and having such high expectations that they are driven to anger. And you know what happens when a kid has that seething anger? One of two things is going to happen. One, they're going to rebel. Or two, they're going to submit, but not out of love, out of fear. You don't want either of those. You know what some of us need to do? Some of us need to go home and repent of our perfectionism. Pastor, you're saying throw out the standards. No, not at all. I'm saying you need to repent, and I need to repent of our perfectionistic standard, which we apply to others, but, but we don't expect God to apply to us. We need to say, I am sorry, spouse. I am sorry, kids, for running this family by law alone and not by grace. And I repent. God, help me to love them the way you love See how theology affects even family life? Right. Now, this is an important one. Security of salvation. How does this affect you dealing with whether you are saved or not? Let me, um, let me give you four categories of people here. Okay? In fact, in this room right now, I guarantee you there are people in each of these quadrants. First of all, there are the people who are saved and know it. You are saved. You're following Jesus. You've got Caleb on all week, and you're praising Jesus, and you're studying your Bible, and um, you're just in love with Jesus, and he's in love with you, and you are, we'll call this a disciple. All right? So this is a, a person who's saved and knows it. Now, then there are those who are unsaved and know it. Right? I don't need to convince you that you're not a believer. You know you're not a believer. So we'll call this person the defiant person. Right? But now let's move from the, the confident column over into the uh, unconfident, the, uh, uh, the, the confused column. This person is unsaved, but they don't know it. This person has gone to church all their life. They think they're saved just because they go to church. This is the deceived person. Remember, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day. And I'll tell them, I never knew you. A lot of deceived people. But then there is the person who's saved. They're saved and they don't know it. This is the doubtful person. They're truly saved. They're in Christ. They've trusted him. But they're not where they want to be, and they're wondering if they're even saved at all. I've been here. Horrible place to be, wondering if you're truly saved. Now, the pastor's job when you preach is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, right? Now, sometimes in trying to uh, bring aid and comfort to the doubtful, that just gives the deceived guy more ammunition to go on in his deception, And sometimes when we try to convict the deceived guy, this poor doubtful guy, he goes even further into doubt about his salvation. So I just want to tell you right now, I'm talking to this person. I realize this is dangerous to this guy, but we're going to talk about you who you want to be saved. You do not want to go to hell. You want Jesus to be real. You believe in him, but you're just not feeling as in love as you should be, and you're not seeing the change in your life that you want to see, I want to give you three things as we close here. Famous last words, right? Three things as we close that might help you out, right? First thing, real simple. Deceived people rarely worry about their salvation. Okay? Okay? People who are deceived about their salvation rarely go around wringing their hands wondering if they're really saved. In other words, the struggle that you're having if you're doubting your salvation is good news. It's a sign of life. It's a sign that you care about your relationship with the Lord. So... The struggle is a sign of life. That's point number one. Point number one, right? Point number two. Might it be that your problem is an over-realized eschatology? You go, what's that again? Having way too much expectations of perfection during this age. Or maybe it's not you having too big of an expectation of yourself. Maybe it's somebody else who has that expectation, and they let it be known to you that you are not living up to the Christian life. Right? Let me remind you of the parable of the four soils. The, the sower is the preacher. The seed is the gospel. It lands on four different places. The path, there's no growth at all. Then it lands on the two middle soils, the rocky soil and the thorny soil, and the plant starts to grow, but it gets choked out and it dies, and there's no fruit. That's the person who is deceived about their salvation, but the lack of fruit over time proves that they were never saved. But then there's the good soil. But have you ever noticed that in the good soil, not everybody produces the same amount of fruit? Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain some a hundredfold some 60, some 30. You know, the, a great way to doubt your salvation is to just follow around a person with a hundredfold. You know, just read about Spurgeon all the time in his ministry. That'll make you feel real good. Right? Or, or look at somebody who's just on fire and witnessing all the time and you tremble at the thought. You want to, but you tremble and you go, I, I must not be saved because hundredfold Harry, he's just on fire and I'm just not there. All right. Might you be expecting perfection when you ought to be looking at progress? Okay. Third thing, third thing. Now, warning, 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 warning. Never are you to use this passage as an excuse to become lazy about sin. But this passage has brought a lot of comfort to a lot of strugglers. Romans 7, the Apostle Paul writes this. "'For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand.' For I delight in, God's, uh, in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Whew, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, um, this is Paul. The apostle struggling with sin. Now, some of you know that there's a big interpretive battle that goes on. Some people think that this is Paul writing as an apostle, but thinking back to when he was a non believer, and this is the struggle of the non believer. Um, other people go, the, the non believer doesn't struggle that way. Most of the, at least Reformed interpreters, believe that this is referring to the normal experience of the ordinary. Believer and the Apostle Paul as a saved man. It sure seems to be the experience of Peter, who three times denies Jesus and repents, and then later on Paul has to rebuke him to his face for compromising. Peter, who is far from perfect, it sure seems to be the experience of of the people that Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer to, the Lord's Prayer that you're to pray, you know, give us this day our daily bread, so it's a thing you're to pray regularly, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There is regular sin that we fall into. Sure seems to be the experience of the people John wrote to in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. In fact, the person who needs to be worried is the one who says, Yeah, I got this thing down. I haven't sinned in years. Really? Wow. Let me help you with that log hanging out of your eye. Okay? Satan wants you to look at the struggle and conclude you're not saved. I believe Jesus would have you look at the struggle of evidence that there's life in you. And when you fail, what do you do? Practice verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, tell Satan, yes, I'm a miserable failure, I fail, I've sinned, but that's why I am standing firmly on the cross. Confess your sins to the Lord, get up, brush yourself off and go on living for him. Right? There's a toughness that has to come with following the Lord. Don't wallow and go into the spiral down 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 down. Admit it. You stink at some things and so do I. Good thing I'm standing on Christ's blood and righteousness and not on my own. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the person who needs encouragement this morning. Not the deceived person, Lord. And you can.